This is a message from the audio library of Revival Tabernacle. It is our hope that it will inspire your confidence in our holy God and the plan of salvation as revealed in His holy scriptures. The blessings of Christ be upon you as you listen. Romans chapter number 8. The title of the message this morning is No Condemnation. We could also call this the benefits of being in Christ. Romans chapter number 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus have made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, or it is not subject to the law of God, Neither indeed can be. No condemnation. Let's have a word of prayer. Again, O oh God, it is our privilege to be able to speak to some of your choicest saints, to be able to minister the word of the Lord to them. I pray that you give them ears to hear what we have to say. Help me to speak clearly. Hide me behind your precious cross. Let your anointing, O God, bring all kinds of victory as the word of the Lord is delivered. And we thank you for conforming our minds to your word. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen, Amen. I don't doubt that a good many people in this world wrestle with guilt and grief and condemnation. I think there are some people that are burdened by condemnation to such degrees that they have a very difficult time enjoying life. And there are a lot of people who take their own lives and even commit suicide because of grief and condemnation. If, if you don't approach this whole issue the correct way, then you end up making one bad decision that leads to other bad decisions. So in the beginning, I should make it very plain that the first sentence says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for those who are believers, those that are connected with God. A Christian should not wake up every morning and feel bad about themselves or feel bad about this life that we live in. But for people who don't know God, that's trouble. We're all familiar with John 3.16. I won't have you recite it, but most people forget that in John 3.18 it says, He that does not believe is condemned already. 
What is condemnation? It's a judgment. It's a verdict of damnation. It means that the one who has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ has already in that particular state has been decreed by God to be condemned because they're not connected with his son and don't believe in him. And should they perish in that condition, they will not spend eternity in heaven. It's almost like a trial where a person is is judged in absentia to be guilty. And the person who's absent of the absent of the court proceedings may never even have known that they had been found guilty. And there are people all around this world who every day live in this world who deny the existence of God, who say that I refuse to believe in your religion and have no idea that their unbelief has already produced for them a verdict that says guilty. And that if they died, they'd be separated from God. Consider that. I think all the news today is about that gentleman that headed up the ISIS over there in the Middle East. And they said when they got close to him, apparently he blew himself up as a, a suicide martyr. Now His world and his religion told him that if he died in that manner, that he would enter into a heaven and there would be a multitude of virgins that would serve him for all of eternity. But John 3.18 stands as the verdict over his life. And can you imagine what that must have been like to push the button, draw your last breath, your body parts go in different directions, and then you end up in an eternity without God? Yeah, the reality of it, folks. So when we come over to Romans chapter 8 and we observe verse number 1, I want you to understand if you are a Christian and you have placed your trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you. You are not condemned. You should feel good about your relationship with God. Your past has been eradicated by the blood. I don't care how bad your past was. It doesn't matter if you had abortions, if you murdered somebody, or if you were just self-righteous, or if you stole something. If you have come into the kingdom of God and trusted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you are no longer guilty. You have been declared innocent. And even though the devil does everything he can to remind you of your past, to make sure that he reiterates in your ears over and over again, well, you did this, you did that. Well, it's true, I did do that. You did do that. But it's also true that God forgave me of that, so the record is clean. Record is clean. So no condemnation for those that are in Christ. So you have to be able to embrace that. And the man or woman who cannot embrace forgiveness is usually the one that struggles with getting out of the bed each day. They feel bad when they look into the mirror and they say, I constantly think I'm just the most horrible person on this earth. Well, if all you're going to do is meditate on the, all the horrible things you've done, then you're going to feel like a horrible person. But if you focus on the glorious things that Christ has done for you in redemption, then you'll feel like you're fearfully and wonderfully made when you look into the mirror. It's a change of perspective. In Christ changes everything. It's a matter of position and it's a matter of status. 
You know that when you drive to certain locations, you have a different feeling when you drive into certain small towns. The atmosphere is different. You drive through some small towns out here in the heartland, which will remain nameless. And then when you drive into them, it just seems like the sun is shining all the time. It's like, I just feel good. When I drive into this little village or I'm passing through this particular town. But then there are other places you drive through. And when you drive into it, it just seems like. See, but when you're dealing with God, you're thinking about redemption and you're dealing with Jesus Christ. Understand that your placement in him gives you a reason to smile. You've been delivered from all of the bondages. You've been delivered from the baggage of your past. You say, well, pastor, if I've been delivered from all of that, why do I still wrestle with some of my old habits? Why do I wrestle and have battles with other things that have taken place in my past? The reason you do is because inside of you, even though you're born again, you still have a sin nature. And the law of sin from that old life is still active inside of you. And that is the part of you that is tempted. Only reason you're tempted by anything is because of the old man, that old nature, that law of sin. If you didn't have an old man or an old nature, you wouldn't be tempted by anything. The devil knows exactly what it is that pleases you. He knows what pleased you. He knows what it is that attracts you, the different allurements in this world that can get your attention. And so he places those in a certain position so that just like Eve in the garden, when you cast your eye upon it, then pretty soon you look at it. Then pretty soon you want to embrace it or taste it. And then afterwards you have yielded. That's what it means to yield to sin. And the devil knows exactly what he's doing. But Paul says in verse one, for those that are in Christ, there's no condemnation. Now, many modern Bibles omit the second part of the verse that says who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And they'll say that certain manuscripts don't have that. But folks, I'm telling you that the oldest and older manuscripts that were used for hundreds of years by the saints of God do have that verse. And the reason Paul wrote that verse is very simply to let us know that in our lifestyle, we are not to live carnally, but we're to live spiritually. Now, what does it mean to be carnally minded? Carnally minded people are individuals who allow the world's culture and system to influence them. That means if you allow anything in this culture, anything that comes from the government, anything that comes from your peers or your neighbors to supersede the authority of the word of God in your life, then essentially you become carnally minded. If in fact those influences are trying to lead you away from the truths of God's word. That's what it means to be carnally minded. So verse two, the law of the spirit of life has set me free. Before I was a Christian, I lived in darkness. I was a sinner as you were. As a sinner, I lived according to my own passions, appetites, desires, designs my own will what i believed was right was right whatever you wanted to do you did it without any forethought of somebody else's desires 
But once you, were, you became a Christian and you were redeemed out of sin, God began to work on your heart. He gives your heart new inclinations and new desires. Suddenly, where you didn't want to go to church, now you desire to go to church. Where before you had no desire to read the Bible, now you can't wait to read the Bible. Before you didn't care about Christian music, now you want to hear Christian music and sing Christian music. Before you didn't care what your eyes looked at or what your ears heard. But now, since you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, you've attempted to become more guarded and protective of what you allow to enter into the mind and into the heart. So the the transformation from darkness into light takes me into a world of illumination now where my perspective changes. My outlook on life changes. And it's because of the law of the spirit of life that is now at work in you. As a Christian, Jesus Christ comes and takes up residence in your heart and he gives you a new set of faculties. You see things differently. You hear things differently. Your conversation is different now. And this is what differentiates us from sinners. So you'll sit, you'll sit and have coffee with people that don't know God, or you'll sit and have a conversation with people that don't know God, and then you trouble yourself trying to figure out why don't they get this? How come they don't understand this? It seems to be as plain as the nose on my face and their face. How come they cannot grasp these truths? Because they're living in darkness. They're in bondage to sin. Their thoughts are bound to sin. But the moment they come over into light under the conviction power, convicting power of the Holy Ghost, their outlook will change and they'll be able to see things as they really are. But most of the world isn't like that. And there are many people that go to church who really have never been transformed in their heart. They go to church. They might have been raised in church, have gone to church every single week because grandma drug them to church or because their parents took them to church or because they begged their parents to go to church, but have never in their life truly been converted in their heart to have the outlook of God. And the scripture is plain. The law of the spirit of life has made me free from the law of sin and death. And now that I've come out of my past, I refuse to go back into it just because other people are trying to pull me into it. It's an attraction. And it's like quicksand back there. If you hated living in Egypt as an Israelite, why in the world would you want to be set free and then go into the wilderness and then crave all of what you had when you were in Egypt? There are people this morning, I guarantee it, that are laying in that bed after a hangover and wishing they had not gone out all night and drank the way they did. And there are people that are bowing down and worshiping at that toilet as they're expurgating all of that stuff they drank and ate last night. And they're saying, I hope I never have another reverence night like that again. And they're probably kids that have had to get up, get up and make their breakfast for themselves because mom and dad were on drugs last night. And they have to get up and take care of their home and got to take care of themselves. And they're saying, if there is a God, I wish he'd manifest himself in this place. And once God pulls somebody out of that lifestyle and brings them into the kingdom of God, why on this earth would anybody start lusting after what they once had that they despised? Don't ever go back. When the law of the spirit of life sets you free, walk in freedom. Stay away from some of those old friends. Stay away from some of those old places. 
and just be where God wants you to be. So verse number three makes it very plain what the law was incapable of doing because of weakness. God sent Jesus. Now, what does the law do? Why did God give the law to Moses? Abraham didn't have it. He did pretty well. He's in the Bible as a man of faith. Isaac, Jacob and Joseph in their generations lived pretty well. God gave the law to restrict and restrain certain kinds of conduct and behavior. God gave the law to the children of Israel so that the law would serve as an indicator or a standard by which to judge right and wrong behavior. God didn't want everybody just drifting through life saying, well, I can do whatever I want to do. And if it feels good, do it. And, And so you could sit back and say, well, it doesn't matter what you think. I can do whatever I want to do. And who are you to judge me? So God gave Moses the law and said, here is the law. Inscribe it. Write it. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Honor the Sabbath. Don't have any other gods before me. And so on and so forth. And then he gave Moses all kinds of other rules and standards by which the people are supposed to live. But the law points out what sin is. The law indicates what is wrong. The moment you tell someone thou shalt not, or you tell someone you should not, or you shout at somebody, don't do this, then somebody starts thinking, okay, if I do it, what will happen? There, there comes the temptation. You place the, the, the temptation in front of them with the appearance of the law. So you say to a baby, you say, look, don't touch the stove, honey, because the stove is hot and it'll burn you. The baby's never been burned. So the baby doesn't know what a hot stove is. So the baby's over there playing and then looking and then trying to see what you're going to say. And then when they get close enough to the hot stove, they touch it. Then they go to screaming and yelling. And then mama comes and picks the baby up and says, see, honey, I told you not to do that. And so the, the, and, and that, that registers in the memory bank. And I know it happens that way because you watch a little toddler and a toddler gets some sharp piece of something in their hand like a coat hanger made out of metal and then they go over to one of the sockets and they get close to it and they're just kind of poking and poking and then mom or dad happen to look up and see what they're doing and I mean you know they don't do it tactfully either I mean they just jump up hey don't do that and then the little kid is so startled and stops and moves back see and, and then later on, the next time the kid goes anywhere near the socket, right when they get close to the socket, they do this. And the reason they look back is because they want to know, am I going to hear that voice again? Once the law was placed in front of them, see, then all of a sudden that's when the temptation begins. Can I do this again? Should I do this again? The scripture says that the law, even though it was strong and indicating what was wrong and right behavior, it was weak in that it could not deliver us from the condemnation of the sins that are a result of the sins. So that's why the priest once a year had to have a sacrifice, had to have the meat dressed Fully cut up, the blood having been caught in a pot. And the priest had to go once a year into the most holy place with a little bit of blood, 
while they were offering the sacrifice out in the outer court, and the priest went into the most holy place, into the presence of God to do his prayers and ritual and take the blood. And then he came out of that place. And then he went right back out there, let the children of Israel know, I have completed my assignment. And I'm sure all of them were happy because of that. But you've, you've got to know that the scripture teaches that the priests under the old covenant had infirmities and weaknesses and sin just like us. A sinful man went into the most holy place to offer blood sacrifices for the children of Israel. And no sooner than he got back out there, they needed another sacrifice because none of them were perfect. None of them. And this is why God had to send his only begotten son. And this is why John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. One drop of his blood removes iniquity and sin. Folks, listen to me. They don't have enough animals blood on this earth to cleanse all of us of our sins. God told Moses 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. every day except the Sabbath day, two sacrifices. An animal has to be sacrificed for the sins of Israel. 1,400 years from Moses to Christ. Think about how many animals died in order to deal with Israel's sin, and Jesus still had to come. I mean, it was the cottage industry. People were raising animals to deal with people's sins. Jesus came, hung on the cross, died for you, died for me. In our place, he stood, he hung, condemned, received the judgment, the guilt, the condemnation that should have come to us. And having done that, we've been delivered from the bondage of our past life. One drop of Jesus' blood cleanses of sin. The scripture makes it very plain. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like you. He looked like me. He condemned sin in the flesh by his death on the cross. And verse 4 says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Every day we struggle to be Christians. We battle with that old nature. Don't tell me there are times throughout the week well, you come very close to saying a word you probably shouldn't say. Some of you might even say a few words you ought not say. Don't tell me you don't have periods in your life where the, the, the adversary gets to bothering you and you think bad thoughts about people. Those struggles come to everybody. And that's that old man. That's why the scripture says, reckon yourself to be dead. And we should be pleased that everything that we think doesn't come to pass. Do you know how many people would be dead today? In one week, do you know how many people make Christians mad? And how many Christians make Christians mad? So that kind of power hasn't been given to any of us. Nevertheless, the scripture is very plain because Jesus lives in us. And we were absolutely incapable of keeping the law, as were the ancient Jews. Jesus has come to fulfill all of the law. He never sinned. He never needed to apologize. He never told anybody he was sorry of anything. He climbed up on the cross, completed his task, went back to heaven after he was raised from the dead. Now he dwells in our heart by faith. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ is now the shared righteousness that we have. So we are righteous in him and because of him. We're innocent. We're just. You say, Pastor, I don't feel righteous. It's not about a feeling. 
It's about faith. It's about belief. It's about confidence. If we had to go on feeling, I can tell you some mornings I wake up, I don't feel like a pastor. But it's not about a feeling. You may wake up in the morning and may not feel like you're married, but you are. If you are, you could have had a dream you were single back in high school again, run, run in the streets with your old crowd, and then you wake up and look over there and there's your spouse. You're still married. Yeah. It's not about a feeling, folks. Yeah. It's not about a feeling. So when we understand the scriptures, then we realize that our relationship with God has afforded us an opportunity to be righteous, and it's not a righteousness that derives in and of ourselves. I could never produce any kind of righteousness that could please God. There is not enough good works that I could do to ever make God happy with me. And if there were enough good works to do, we all would do them. Think about it. If, if you could cut grass and make it to heaven, we'd be the best landscape artists on the planet. If, if being baptized in water is what's going to make somebody a good Christian, then we ought to just line them up down here at the Republican River and just keep this thing going for days on end. But I'm telling you, there's not enough water in Webster County to wipe the sins out of the lives of people here. Only the blood of Jesus could do that. I recall an occasion one time where a friend of mine, a pastor, he, he, he said, Brother Darrell, keep us in prayer. My father just passed away, and so I have to go and help settle up his estate and get ready for the funeral. And him being a pastor, he went to this particular denominational church, and this pastor was going to do the funeral. He wasn't going to let the son do it, but the pastor of the denominational church was going to do it. So my friend went into the office to meet this pastor and to talk with him, figure out what he was going to say, because my friend knew that his dad wasn't a believer and really wasn't interested in the things of God, but he still was a member of a church. And so the pastor of this denominational church said to him, in conversation, well, I'm going to preach and I'm going to tell all about your, your dad and all the good things he did here around the church and, and, and all of that. And my pastor friend said, well, look, my, my dad didn't believe in God. He said he came out here because th this is where people in community came and it was more of a social thing for him. He didn't believe in Jesus. I know I was raised by him and I tried to witness to him and talk to him all the time. And the pastor said to my friend, you mean to tell me that you really think that your dad, who for decades cut the grass here at the church, that he wasn't a Christian? He cut the grass for God's sake. See, here's a pastor of a church telling my friend that dad went to heaven because he knew how to cut grass. Not because he had faith in God, not because he had a relationship with God, not because of the blood of Jesus or, or Christ's death on the cross, but because the man knew how to sit on a riding lawnmower and ride all around the church campus, that means the man goes to heaven. This is the kind of deception that there is in the world today. Nobody gets into heaven because they know how to ride on a riding lawnmower. We get to heaven because of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and none of us are righteous because we've done enough deeds. You can't bake enough cakes. You can't wash enough cars. You can't do enough good deeds to earn your way into heaven. But you can believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you gain entrance. And one day the Lord will say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Can you say amen? That's the that's the Bible. Now, when you become a Christian, naturally, good works will follow. But good works don't produce salvation. Good works are a product of salvation. You say, well, pastor, I mean, if, if people are doing good works, well, surely they're saved. Well, no, there are a whole lot of people that work for the Salvation Army that aren't Christians. I don't want you under the impression that every time you go to a, a department store or a shopping place and you see somebody out there ringling, ringing a bell for Salvation Army asking for a donation that because they're ringing that bell, that means they're Christian. Doesn't mean that at all. There are hundreds of people that work for Christian organizations and are not born again. You better believe it. I've met people right up here to college in Hastings, supposed to be a Christian place for years. I'd go up there and do stuff in the library. They had numerous people working in that place that didn't believe in God. Some of them lived out, lived together outside of wedlock. And they didn't care that they were living together outside of wedlock. Some of them were engaged in same sex relations and didn't care that they were engaged in same sex relations. Some even told me they didn't believe in God and were teachers on the faculty. And they didn't care, but they were the Christian place. So just because the tag Christian is applied, that don't make somebody a Christian, folks. Somebody could have an apricot tree in their backyard and they could put a sign out there that said, come get some fresh apples right off the branches. But just because you got the tag, that doesn't make it an apple tree. And, and somebody may, may go ahead and, and get them one of them fake Rolexes like they used to sell when I lived overseas in the military. And, and, and when they look at that thing and they, they, they look at it real closely, they say, oh, this, this can't be one of the, the real Rolexes. And they sell it. They say, oh, yeah, yes, it is. But then one thing you know about a real Rolex is that, that second hand, when it's moving, it just moves fluently, just like this. But then they'd be selling for $1,500 those fake Rolexes and that second hand be moving just like this, just ticking. And I mean, you have Marines had no idea between what was true and what was false. And they'd shell out fifteen hundred dollars, two thousand dollars. And they're walking around looking at that and they're trying to let people know we've got the real thing. And I'm looking at that. You were sold a lie. And then when they finally discover the truth, they're angry. Imagine people go all of their life believing a lie, then come and stumble into the truth. And then you'll find that they get angry at the fact that they never had known the truth. I've had people come to our Bible studies who've sat in different churches and then hear me teach something like this. And week after week, the longer they listen to me, the angrier they get. Not at me, but at the fact they were sitting in that church for decades and that preacher or no preacher ever told them the truth about being saved. Or walking with God. Yeah, sometimes when your eyes are open, it's like seeing your first sunrise. I mean, you're just mesmerized by it. 
You mean to tell me salvation does all of that? It brings into my life the opportunity to move away from all condemnation, grief and guilt. The fact that I had a parent that committed suicide or the fact that I had a spouse that took their life or the fact that I had somebody that died in a terrible tragedy, tragedy or bad relationship with my siblings or whatever it might be. You're trying to tell me that God can bring me through all of that and I don't have to keep looking back feeling bad about it. You don't. God can bring you into a relationship with him where you totally reject all of that and transform your mind through the word so that you can stand on the truth of God's word. The devil would love for you to be condemned. I sat with a person many, many, many years ago had been physically, sexually abused. I had to bring this person into the home and Tiff and I was ministering to the person and and uh so I'm listening. The little girl's just weeping. She's just crying, going on and on. And, and our hearts were just breaking. So we listened to this horrid story, and it was just terrible. I don't even want to go into the details, but, but in the end, in talking with her afterwards, I said to her, here's how you're going to have to deal with this. Someone tell you a story. I told her, I said, there was a man one time that was born into this world, his mother was a virgin, but everybody in town accused his mother of sleeping around. They didn't even think Joseph was the dad. So essentially, to use the old English word in the book of Hebrews, he would have been a bastard. He had a mom, but nobody was, even really knew who the dad was. Mary knew the Holy Ghost came upon her, but, but, but the, the fact is, the child was raised with people believing nobody knows who Jesus' dad is. Said he grew up, they had rumors about him, and the ancient Jewish texts were saying that Jesus was sired by a Roman soldier. This was the scuttlebutt. But I said, this, this man, Jesus, he lived his life without sin. As a kid, he loved God. His business was about the kingdom of God. When he became an adult, about 30 years of age, John the Baptist baptized him. He went about doing, the, doing good, healing the sick, casting out devils, ministering to people. He never did anything wrong. He offended a lot of people, but he never sinned. I said, this man ended up being betrayed by somebody so close to him. And that's when betrayal hurts the most. The person you know, the person that's intimate with you, the person that's closest to you. Judas came up to Jesus in the garden and kissed him on the cheek as a sign. This is the culprit. Apprehend him. They grabbed Jesus. His disciples took off and fled in different directions. They had hold to one disciple, but they held on to him so tightly. And the disciple wanted to get away. He fled and he left his garment in the hands of one of the people that were trying to apprehend him. And I said, all night long, they beat Jesus, they abused Jesus, they assaulted Jesus, they lied on Jesus. And I kept emphasizing that word abuse. See, they, they, they hurt Jesus, they harmed Jesus. I said, then he goes to Calvary, he hangs on that cross, he dies. But I said, before he died with the Roman soldiers gambling for his garments, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And then I said, he died, and then he was raised again, and now he's up in heaven. And so I asked her, are you a Christian? She said, yes. Then I said, here's how you're going to be healed. You're going to have to understand that at some point, you're going to have to embrace the fact you're going to have to forgive. You may not be in the condition right now, 
mentally, emotionally, where you want to forgive, but you're going to have to forgive if you're going to ever experience any kind of healing out of all of this. And I don't care what any counselor tells you. I don't care what any psychologist tells you. 